0: Welcome to the Refine Your Health podcast with Dr. Dion. I'm a primary care physician, and now I can happily add podcaster. Tune in to each episode to hear great information on improving health outcomes, disease prevention, and overall community health advocacy. Thanks for listening. Now let's jump into today's episode to improve your health. Hello, listeners. It is your host, Dr. Dion. Thanks for checking out this episode of Refine Your Health. I'm so excited about this episode because I have a very special guest joining me. For this episode, we will be discussing obesity and its overall impact on your health. This is a great topic to discuss because so many of you at the start of the new year are trying to lose weight, improve your physical fitness and nutrition. In addition, I discovered from the CDC website, which is the Center for Disease Control, the United States spends roughly $147 billion annually on obesity-related healthcare costs. Think about that. That is an insane number. Almost one in five children and more than one in three adults struggle with obesity. And nearly one in four young adults are too heavy to serve in our military. Therefore, I have requested the help of my very special guest, Dr. Avishkar Sabarwal, to tackle this subject. Dr. Sabarwal is a physician trained in internal medicine, both in India and the United States, and he's board certified in obesity medicine and lifestyle medicine. His focus area has always been lifestyle diseases, especially obesity. Dr. Sabarwal is a member of the Obesity Medicine Association, wherein he has been actively involved in the Speakers Bureau Committee. He is also a member of the Lipid Association of India and has been a speaker at various webinars throughout the country, highlighting the importance of recognizing obesity and metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular health. Welcome, Dr. Sabarwal.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Dion, for having me. It's amazing.
0: Great. You know, this is the beginning of a new year. Everybody is interested in trying to be healthy and trying to lose weight. And I think this is a great topic to kind of jump off the year with. Let's just start off by saying, okay, what is obesity?
1: Yeah, you know, you said it right. I think this is the only thing that's on people's minds on January 1 when they start uh, the new year. Probably not this year, though, but, uh, you know, but most of the years it's always uh, weight loss and getting fit and getting to exercise and whatever. So coming to the definition of obesity, really what we've used always is the BMI. That's the body mass index to define obesity. What body mass index really is, is basically your weight. In, I, I use the metric system because I was earlier trained in the metric system. So was, for some reason, I've not been able to transition over to the system used here. Um, but I so I will just say that it's your weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters, and then you divide it again by your height in meters. Now, you don't need to do it. You know, you don't need to sit down with a calculator and do it. You can just go online and find. It's very easy to find a BMI calculator, and I think a lot of people already know what a, what BMI is. So by BMI, the definition of obesity. And I'm going to talk about obesity in the US uh, because even for the definition of obesity changes with regards to what BMI pertains to particular population. For example, it may be the BMI defining obesity may be lower for uh, the population um, in Asian countries compared to the US. But in the US, uh, BMI above 25. So 25 to 29.99 is considered overweight and 30 and above is considered obesity. 30 to 34.99 is grade one. 35 to 39.99 is stay a uh, grade 2, and then more than 40, 40 and more is grade 3 obesity. And sometimes it's also called morbid obesity, which is not a great term to use for that. Now, the other interesting thing that is actually used for definition of obesity is also your body fat percentage. Because we know that uh, the, the BMI is not a very, very accurate measure. It's a good measure. It's been around for a very long time. Uh, the other thing that we use is your body fat percentage. Now, how do you get to the body fat percentage? Well, uh, you can use various techniques. You can use uh, a, a DEXA scan is the most accurate way to do it, but it's very expensive. So we don't do that. Usually in the obesity clinics, what people use is the bioimpedance machines. And they're good. They're supposed to be there. They have to be good quality bioimpedance machines for them to give you an accurate reading. There are some cheap ones available. I don't know what if they've been validated or not, but the the good ones are really expensive and you'll usually find them in, Obesity clinics, which you know specialists use, so body fat percentage more than thirty two percent in women and more than twenty five percent in men is considered to be you know in the obesity range, and and that becomes important because sometimes the BMI BMI can throw you off. Uh, If somebody is very muscular, they may have a very high BMI, but uh, they may have may not have high body fat percentage. So the BMI may throw you off, but then the body fat percentage comes into play. So it's both that can be used to define obesity. And actually, uh, in Canada, they've developed another scale, so to say, called the Edmonton staging system to define obesity. It's not really just to define, but also to kind of take into account the different comorbidities that come along with obesity. But it's such a complex disease. And I think it's really important to know how you can define it. Having said all of that, Having said, you know, all of these definitions and all of the technicalities behind this, really, I think the simplest thing that people can do with regards to obesity, and I think what people should do is basically just use a measuring tape and they can just measure their waist circumference. That's That basically talks about the insulin resistance that comes along with obesity. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that I always encourage people to start with. It's very straightforward. You don't need expensive equipment for that. Um, you can just be at home. And you can use that. And of course, even BMI, you can do it at home and you can know where you stand. So these two measures are really, you know, cheap ways of knowing your health with regards to insulin resistance, with regards to obesity.
0: Okay. So in regards to the BMI, is there a difference in regards to ethnicity and how that can be translated as far as what you get as a BMI?
1: Yeah, there is a difference. So Asian people are usually shorter, they're usually thinner. So the BMI is going to be lower for them with regards to what is defined as obesity compared to the the Caucasian population or, you know, what we use in America. So that's why it's higher over here and it's it's going to be lower for the Asian population. Now, but for all practical purposes, we still use the cutoffs that I mentioned, 25, 30 and above.
0: And... As far as the waist circumference, you said that's a simple way for people to kind of determine their risk of obesity. How would they measure that at home to give them an idea? You said measured around their waist. Like, how would they do that? Where, where, what are the starting points?
1: So there are different ways you can do that, actually, but uh, usually e- e- they can either do it around the iliac crest. Some of the some people suggest you can do it at the highest, the the largest protuberance, but really around the iliac crest. If they do it, um that's it's just a way to standardize where you measure your waist and uh, more than 40 inches in men is high and more than 35 inches in women is high so that's the way to start again this is an indirect measure of insulin resistance really and that's why we use waist circumference and various studies actually interestingly have shown that you know even waist circumference independently is associated with worse outcomes in cardiovascular disease
0: Okay. Well, I know we're going to be talking majority about adults today, but I just want to also pinpoint to my listeners about the percentage of the BMI for children. And I know that for kids uh, greater than 95th percentile for their BMI is considered obese. And between the range of 85 to 95% is considered overweight for that BMI in children. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: So What is the best method for an individual if they really want to try to get an idea about if they're at risk for obesity? Is it just getting that waist circumference to start or is it something that they need to see their physician for to get a better accuracy for that percentage?
1: Well, I I think you can start with BMI because essentially that's what we use um, to define obesity and that can be done at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but having said that When you go to your primary care physician They'll always be measuring your weight And always be measuring your height And that they will always be putting in the BMI there So that's a discussion to have there When they measure all of these things To ask them what is my BMI And uh, kind of go and ask them Okay what do we do next about it So I think that's a good good place to start
0: All right So what are some of the causes of
1: obesity? <laughs> that's an interesting question Dr. Yon. It's uh, you know it's very complex Mm-hmm. How obesity works, so the causes are multifactorial, okay, okay? Uh, of course, there are certain very rare forms of genetic causes of obesity, but what ends up happening is the environment we are in is what we call a uh, quote unquote the obesogenic environment. and what this means is that our environment is kind of playing into how we and how we interact with it uh, kind of causes us to get this disease and We've seen this and we know this because uh, obesity really became an epidemic about, started becoming an epidemic about 30, 40 years ago, right? Before that, we did not have this epidemic. Now, our genes didn't change in the last 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. So what changed? The environment changed, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of uh, drives a lot of this obesity. Now, it's also more complex because there are a lot of hormones that are at play over here. There are certain hormones with regards to your satiety your hunger there are certain long term long term hormones which play a role primarily insulin and and leptin that come into play and we more or less kind of know that insulin is a very big driver of of obesity because we see that a lot of you know, I'm sure you would have seen in your practice as well whenever we start somebody on insulin for diabetes they start gaining weight correct and, and that's because um Insulin is doing its job. It's driving the blood sugar into the fat cells to and storing it as fat. It's driving the blood out of the, the, I mean, the sugar out of the blood into the fat cells. So it's doing its job in controlling the the blood sugar levels, but it's also causing people to gain weight. And this is also seen with type one diabetics who are usually very very lean, and the moment you start insulin, they start gaining the weight. So that's a very big driver of how obesity works. Mm -hmm. Um, And we see that a lot of times in obesity there's a state of what we call leptin resistance. Now, leptin, what happens is it's a hormone that's produced from the fat cells. And it tells uh, the brain that you've had enough to you know eat or you should be not be hungry anymore. Uh, so it has both short-term and long-term effects. Okay. The short-term is going to tell you that, okay, you're done. But the long-term is it also, uh, what ends up happening is when it's, it's persistently high, there's a resistance that develops to it. So the brain is not getting that signal from the, the fat cells about the fact that there's enough fat storage in the body and that plays a role in how obesity works so we have insulin resistance we have leptin resistance and that's the current current understanding of how it works and uh, but it's i'm just breaking it i'm making it very simple it's a little more complex than that mm-hmm. um, but really the the main driver driving hormone for our hunger is the ghrelin hormone that's produced from our stomach from our gi tract what uh, the other things that happen in obesity are also what we call our hedonic system. Now that's our system that drives our um, desires and our wishes and basically how we interact with food psychologically. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these foods that we call, quote-unquote, the hyperpalatable foods, they actually uh, kind of activate the addictive pathway. And what ends up happening is you kind of crave more of these. And that also plays into the whole obesity problem that we have right now. So it's really much more than calories in, calories out uh, that has traditionally been the, the thought process for obesity.
0: Okay. So yeah, that makes sense because um, a lot of people think, okay, is you're taking in more than you're exercising as far as like lose, trying to lose weight, but it's more of a physiological component as well that people aren't aware of. So there is not like an obesity gene cr- that exists,
1: right? Well, I mean, there are genetic syndromes that can cause obesity, but there's no one gene. Most commonly, the obesity is not genetic. It's because of the environment. Gotcha. That's and awesome.
0: so what are some of the additional things that, that you say you mentioned environment. What are those things that environmentally that put people at risk for being obese?
1: So it can be anything, you know, it can be your stress. So actually, when we talk about obesity medicine, we talk about four pillars. So the four pillars are nutrition, your exercise, mindfulness, not exactly mindfulness, but the, the mental processes that go into play. Mm-hmm. And medications and surgery. And these are the treatment modalities that we use. So these are the four pillars of management of obesity. Now, if you look at that, nutrition plays an important role, definitely. Okay. Um, our lifestyles have changed. We've become more sedentary. So that does come into play, right? But exercise, having said that, exercise is not the primary way that anybody is going to lose weight. Now, some people can respond better to exercise in terms of their weight loss. Some people may not respond as well to exercise. But it's not going to be the primary way. You cannot outrun a bad diet. So so that's one. The other one I talked about, the exercise. You talk about sleep. Sleep is such an important thing. We see a lot of times that people who work the graveyard shift actually have a harder time losing weight than people who do not. Mm-hmm. And sometimes making those switches can help. So that comes into play. Your stress comes into play uh, because chronic stress le- leads to elevated cortisol levels. So that comes into play. A lot of times people are on medications that they require for some diseases that that comes into play. For example, I just mentioned insulin. Um, There are some psychiatric medications that can cause weight gain. So that comes into play. So there's a lot more that goes into all of this than just your diet or just exercise.
0: Okay. And what are some of the complications of obesity?
1: Oh gosh, it affects everything it's it's, just, it's one thing that affects so many things. Mm-hmm. Um, it can have an effect It is directly uh, associated with depression. So people with depression have a higher risk of obesity, with people with obesity have a higher risk of um, depression. It's associated with, of course, cardiovascular diseases. It's associated with strokes. It's associated with so many things. You name it, it's associated with that. It's associated with PCOS. It's associated with infertility. Um there's a lot of things that go into this so one thing and you so that's why it's so critical to understand and recognize this disease and treat it the right way so that you know that it, it's associated with hypertension so when we treat people with uh, who are suffering with obesity mm-hmm. when we treat them there are a lot of people who will come off all of these medications for example they can come off they may come off hyper anti they may be able to come off their anti-diabetic medications because all of this leads to all of uh, all of these complications
0: Right. And I've experienced that too in my office. If they do lose the weight, I do agree that like a lot of the high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetic medications, they're able to come off and just maintain their health through lifestyle, healthy lifestyle choices. So does obesity increase risk for particular
1: cancers as well? Yes, it does. Um, It does increase. Actually, I forgot to mention that. Thank you for pointing that out. It does increase risk of cancers, for example, breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, um, and a few others. So it does increase the risk for cancers as well.
0: Also, I noted during my research that people aren't aware that it could also be involved in musculoskeletal. How does that impact as well?
1: Oh, yeah, because you see what ends up happening is that when you are suffering from obesity, so there are multiple things that happen. It's one of them is, of course, it's a state of chronic inflammation, right? So there are certain chronic pains that people will have because of that chronic inflammatory process that's going on. On top of that, because just because of the weight that people are carrying around, it really puts a lot of weight on the weight-bearing joints, which are the hip joints, the knee joints. So it can lead to early osteoarthritis. It can lead to... Uh, pains, knee pains, chronic hip pain, chronic knee pain, um, and a lot of pain issues can occur. Sometimes people have shoulder pains with all of this. So there's a lot um, that goes into it.
0: I had a question. You mentioned uh, depression can lead to obesity. Could being obese lead to like depression?
1: Yeah, yeah, we do see a bidirectional uh, association between both, both diseases, depression and obesity. So, so yes, if you are suffering from obesity, you, it puts you at a higher risk of having depression. And if you have depression, it puts you at a higher risk of having obesity.
0: Okay. And also it includes risk for heart disease as well, correct? Yes,
1: it does. Yep, absolutely.
0: Okay. All right. So I was also looking at some research as for as children and I know that they had some of the similar risk, uh, as well as adults, as far as type two diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, as well as some joint complaints, joint pain complaints, or uh, musculoskeletal discomfort. However, I did notice something that I hadn't come across before, and I wanted to ask you: Is it prevalent in adults as well? Obesity has increased risk of complications of asthma or sleep apnea. Have you noticed that at all?
1: Yeah, absolutely, it does. So it increases the risk of having uh, uh, asthma. Increases the severity of asthma uh, in patients who have asthma already, and we don't really know why exactly that happens. But it does increase the risk of not increase; it increases the severity of asthma. As far as obst- obstructive sleep apnea, yes, it in- does definitely increase the risk of obstru- uh, obstructive sleep apnea, and it's very important to screen people for that. Now, having said that, just treatment of obstructive sleep apnea may not necessarily help a lot with the weight change or Mm -hmm. causing you to have weight loss but that's something very important that we need to treat because it can be a cause of many other things um, in itself like pulmonary hypertension or regular hypertension per se increased cardiovascular disease etc so yeah so it's it's important to recognize that as well
0: Also, I wanted to mention children as well also have the risk of anxiety and depression. But I also want to make sure that for my listeners that parents need to be aware that, of course, you know, being overweight or the risk of being obese in children can lead to anxiety, depression, some low self-esteem concerns, as well as, you know, increased risk of like a stigma associated with being overweight or obese, as well as, you know, being at risk for being bullied. So I always want to make sure that, you know, parents are aware of that as well. And that some of these things that we're talking about in adults can present in children as well as far as, you know, risk factors from being overweight or obese.
1: Yeah, I think you raise a very valid point, uh, Dr. Dion, because we're going into this realm of weight bias now. And it's very interesting because uh, you see... 70% 70% or more of our population is suffering from either overweight or obesity. And yet we're in a situation where we talk about weight bias, where people who are suffering from obesity are actually looked down upon. And it's always felt that it is their fault that they're suffering from this. It's their fault that they cannot control themselves. or They're not able to put the right foods into their mouths willfully. I don't think anybody suffering from obesity would want to willfully put the wrong foods into their mouths. I don't uh, I don't think they've not tried and we have a lot of high achieving individuals throughout the world who do suffer from obesity and yet we come across this notion that it's somehow that particular person's fault and it just begs the question if they have the will to succeed in so many other aspects of their lives why would they willfully not take responsibility for their health and that just is it doesn't compute right because right. They're able to take care of everything else in their life. They may have they may have great success professionally, but when it comes to their personal health, what happens? And then the other flip side of it is did, did we as a population suddenly lose our will as far as our health goes 30, 40 years ago when this really started affecting our society as a whole? What happened? What suddenly happened? We had will 40 years ago, but then suddenly 40 years ago we stopped it. We stopped, we decided as a community, as a society, that we're not going to have will to keep ourselves healthy. And that also doesn't add up. So it's a lot more than that. And I think it's important to understand that this weight bias that exists in the society does have an impact on the psyche of a person who's suffering from obesity as well. Okay.
0: So regarding young adults, I noted from a self-reported study from the CDC that young adults reported being less obese in the age range between 18 to 24 versus middle-aged adults between 45 to 54, why is there a tendency to be lower weight or lower risk for obesity as a young
1: adult versus someone that is middle-aged? You know, I'm not sure why that would be the case. Um, One thing that I can say is that as we start aging, obviously our body goes through some changes. We start losing our muscle mass. We start having some more fat deposition in our body, and as we continue to age, we go through a, a process called sarcopenia. So that definitely does happen. I'm not sure if that comes into play as far as this goes. And of course, once we get to this middle age, um, a lot of times we are w- busy with our much more busy with our work mm-hmm. and. I'm, and I'm just guessing, I'm just speculating here, that's probably why people are not having enough time to be physically active, which we know does help preserve the lean body mass. So I don't know if that also comes into play over here.
0: So what is the, can you clarify sarcopenia? What is that?
1: So sarcopenia is actually just loss of your uh, muscle mass. Okay. So so that, ha- that happens, that's a natural process that happens within every individual as you age.
0: When I saw that, I was thinking about, does metabolism play a role in that as well between the age Um,
1: So I'm not sure if it's going to be that big of a driver. And I don't think it's going to be that big of a change when you're within the two consecutive age groups. But of course, it does go down as you age. But like I said, it's so much more than just your metabolism and just the way it acts. It's, uh, there are a lot of other drivers that come into play. So, and, you know, honestly, pinpointing it to one thing may not be appropriate mm-hmm. because uh, I do not know as a society, what are the factors that would cause that age group to have a higher prevalence of uh, obesity compared to the other population.
0: I often have patients that come to my office and once they hit that 40 year mark, they're like, okay, yeah, my." I'm gaining this weight. I know it's my age. I think it's because my metabolism is slow. But I'm glad that you pointed out that it's multifactorial.
1: Right. I mean, it does slow down with age because uh, when you're losing your muscle mass, obviously that that does uh, contribute to slowing down of the, the resting metabolic rate. That does happen. So I'm not denying that. But I don't think that's the sole factor driving anybody's obesity.
0: And that's what I wanted to make sure that my listeners are aware of. That is just not the sole factor. It's multifactorial. So I want to also transition to another finding or statistics that I got from the CDC website. And this is basically self-reported obesity, but there has been note of some disparities who are at risk for being overweight or obese. And so they looked at the 49 uh, states in the U.S., the contiguous states, as well as D.C., and 34 states and including DC, it was reported that they had obesity prevalence of 35% or higher in black adults. And then you look at 15 states that had an obesity prevalence of 35% or higher in Hispanic adults. And then only in six states, you had an obesity prevalence of 35% or higher in Caucasian adults. So I wanted to list those statistics because I wanted to know, is there some research to show why obesity prevalence has been noted to be less in Caucasians compared to minority populations?
1: I'm not entirely sure, but what I do know is that, uh, you know, it goes hand in hand with also the the socioeconomic status of the person. So people who are um, lower lower income earners relatively, that population has a higher prevalence of obesity itself. So I'm not sure if that's coming into play over here as far as um, these populations go, but I'm not sure of any specific genetic differences that would cause um, these populations to be at a higher risk of uh, of obesity compared to the Caucasian population for that matter.
0: So you bring up a good point. You say, okay, socioeconomic status may play a role. So being of a lower socioeconomic status, why does that put you at a higher risk for obesity or being overweight compared to someone with a higher socioeconomic status?
1: <laughs> That's a very interesting question because um, I think the way I look at it is that a lot of the healthier foods that are available are much more expensive mm-hmm. and what ends up happening is um, some of these places where especially people's who, people who are of the lower income part of the society live they may be what we call quote-unquote food deserts some of the areas are food deserts and what happens is these places do not have access direct access to the nutritious food the nutrient dense food and what they have access to are pretty much packaged foods and what we call hyperpalatable foods and they certainly drive you know this epidemic of obesity and so that's definitely at play over here i think that that may be one of the major drivers as far as obesity goes is just the way that it's the food that's available to the population in these uh, societies
0: can you explain what a food desert is for my listeners?
1: So a food desert would be someplace where you don't have uh, a grocery store with all the fresh produce, the the nutrient-dense foods that we talk about available readily to you, and that's what we would call a food desert. There is going to be food. It's not like there's no food there, but it's not going to be the right kind of food that you would need to have a healthy life.
0: Okay. Let's kind of just transition to, you know, what are some ways to manage being overweight or obese. I know that you mentioned earlier, and I kind of want to talk about this uh, first before we transition to some of the uh, other uh, topics, is that you mentioned sleep is important. So how much sleep should an individual get as an adult?
1: <laughs> that's a good question. So um, ideally, you should get about seven hours to eight hours of sleep. And that's ideal. If you get less sleep, you're more prone to having obesity. But every individual is different. And there are some ways you can improve your sleep. There are certain things that you can do for sleep hygiene, avoid blue light, avoid exposure to television, keep a quiet room, make sure the bed is only used for sleep or for sexual intercourse and really restrict doing anything else in the bed. Reading, writing, everything should be done separate on a table so that it's only for those two activities. And and yeah, there are certain things that you can practice uh, to kind of get a good sleep.
0: You mentioned the four pillars as far as, you know, managing obesity, and one of those included exercise. So how much exercise should we be getting as an adult?
1: So uh, exercise per se, we say uh, about 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise is considered healthy. It's for your general health. For weight loss, really, Exercise is not the best way to go. Even when we see people with obesity, that's not the first thing that the person is supposed to do. We try to start people on uh, a diet change first, and then we bring in the exercise part of it. And really the important thing about exercise is you really need to have something that the person will enjoy doing and yeah and basically just start so 150 minutes a week is recommended for general health you can go higher so 150 minutes of moderate intensity or 75 minutes of vigorous intensity exercise you can go higher um, there's a very interesting registry called the national weight control registry where they saw that basically they had people who had lost a significant amount of weight for a certain amount of years and what they found was uh they saw they saw what these people were doing and what they saw was that On an average, people were exercising for about 60 minutes a day. So that's a lot. Um, That amounts to about 420 minutes a week of exercise. Now, we do know that if you exercise more, about 300 to 420 minutes, it prevents weight regain. So that's very important in a sense, not for weight loss, but to prevent the weight regain. And that's a lot of exercise that you need to do in a week. So And that's why we say that exercise is not the first thing that you would jump onto uh, as far as weight loss is concerned.
0: Okay. And in this day and age, we have everyone with these pedometers or these watches that tell us how many steps that we're getting in a day, and we hear this target goal of 10,000 steps <laughs> in a day. I'm like, how do we get to this 10,000 step goal? Why isn't it 20,000 or 15,000 or, you know, 7,500? Also, has that proven walking those 10,000 steps improve your health as far as impacting obesity or being overweight
1: so you know it's very interesting and why i was laughing was because actually i did an episode on this right. uh, on my podcast what we find is so in- interestingly the story of ten thousand steps is uh that basically it was a marketing gimmick by a japanese company called uh, manpoki they were trying to sell their pedometer Uh and they kind of started advertising this and it just picked on picked up but the good thing is ten steps it's a good thing to do it's not a bad thing to do any amount of exercise is good so yeah it should be one of the things that you should try to do but of course that should not be the end goal. It should not be just ten thousand steps. Try getting to ten thousand steps and try beating that. So, so that should be the the key. There is there are studies on this. I mean, but it's really about physical activity, right? So, so obviously any physical activity helps. Any amount of physical activity is good, honestly. So, yeah, it's good. It's a good thing to do.
0: So I give this a lot when I'm in the office. I recommend that. You know, patients do the one hundred and fifty minutes per week of moderate exercise, or if they can't do that, do the vigorous um seventy five minutes of vigorous exercise. And also advise them to include at least a couple of days of strength training as well per week. But some individuals tell me, "Hey, I got a physical job. I don't need to work out. Is that considered physical exercise?
1: Let me break this down for you. So physical exercise is actually something that you do a repetitive activity that you're doing. Uh, willfully within a certain set amount of time There's a specific definition of physical exercise But what's more important is physical activity And there has to be a differentiation between the two So there is non-exercise activity And there is physical exercise, right? So really, most of the time what we're doing Is the non-exercise activity And we really need to try and bring that part up. Now, if you're very busy in your job um, That's absolutely understandable what you can do is try to take the stairs instead of the elevator, right? That increases your physical activity. Try to whenever, even if you're at your job, if you're sitting at your desk, try getting up every, say, half an hour, 40 minutes, and try to just take a walk around the office and then just come back and say so that's just being physically active mm-hmm. throughout the day. And then try parking further away from the office building and walk that extra, those extra few steps. So any amount of extra physical activity helps whether it's exercise per se or whether whether it's physical activity, right. but you can overdo an you can overdo exercise definitely, and we do not recommend doing that. But you really need to be physically active throughout the day. And that's very important because most of the the overall physical activity that we perform during the day. That includes your exercise, -exercise, non-exercise physical activity, non-exercise activity. Most of it is actually the non-exercise part that we do. And that's really important to maintain throughout the day.
0: You're saying that physical exercise is more of a repetitive type of activity compared to physical activity.
1: Correct. So yeah, it's a more repetitive activity that you're doing. For example, if you're running, you're running for a particular amount of time, you're doing it every day. If you're wa- lifting weights, there are going to be certain reps on it, you're going to have certain weight over there. So it's it's a repetitive motion of a specific type of an activity that you're doing. But non, non-exercise activity is pretty much anything. You're walking, you're fidgeting with your fingers, you're basically typing, that's all physical activity. But the more you do, the better. Correct. Okay having so, said that i just want to make sure that uh, people don't misconstrue me that typing is physical activity so they just sit on sit on their desks and keep typing but really in- involving all of your other muscles the larger muscles especially, uh, especially the skeletal larger skeletal muscles to kind of keep them active uh, because that really helps and exercise at best we've seen it doesn't it helps with prevention of weight regain and not necessarily weight loss okay so that's important to understand definitely
0: so Let's say they can't get over that magic number that they have in their head to drop below a certain weight. I've heard it called the weight plateau. I think that's correct. But can you explain what that is and why does that occur?
1: So uh, that's a physiological process that occurs in our body, right? So when we're trying to lose weight, uh, the way our body, the way our physiology works is that once you get to a higher weight, it's very difficult to lose the weight. And why that is, is because the body tries to protect you at that weight. So when you try to lose weight, the body goes into sort of a quote-unquote crisis mode. It just thinks that there's no food around and I just need to preserve all all energy that's available. Uh, And that's what ends up happening. So it tries to protect that extra weight that you've already gained. Unfortunately, that's the way our physiology works. And the body will do everything possible, including reducing your physical activity. So when you start losing weight, you'll start becoming less active. You'll become more hungry. When you eat food, you'll not feel satiated uh, when you're when you've lost a certain amount of weight and uh, food looks much more appealing to you. And these are all happening because you've lost the weight. It's it, there's nothing else happening, and it's so complex because it's actually happening at the brain level where all of these changes are happening, then your resting metabolic rate will go down. and there are a lot of other changes that occur. You'll not be physically as active. So the body tries to protect that extra, um the weight loss that you're uh, the the extra weight that you've gained. So, yeah, that's why it's very difficult and that's why people hit the plateau.
0: And in regards to the exercise, people often look at the scale when they step on the scale as a way to measure if they're making progress in regards to weight loss. Is that a good thing to do or what should they be looking at physiologically?
1: So, uh, I think it's a reasonable way to start is to look at your weight. I, I think it's a reasonable start because that's one of the easiest ways that we objectively measure how our weight is coming down. But the other thing would be, of course, looking at your BMI. It can also be looking, if you have an access to a bioimpedance scale, looking at how your fat percentage is changing. And uh, yeah, you can look at your waist circumference. Sometimes people don't lose the weight, but they lose inches. And that's known. So you can look at that. And overall, how you feel? Do you have more energy? Do you have less energy? What's going on within your body? Really understanding what's going on. And as far as the diet goes, you really need to, you know, change your diet, try and change it as much uh, to whatever you can actually maintain, Uh, you know, whatever healthy diet that you can maintain. And I think that's also important.
0: Okay. Also in the management of being overweight or or in obesity, you mentioned that in combating that nutrition plays an important role. And that's one of the starting points that you typically look at as far as how to manage being overweight or being obese. What do you initially recommend to your patients that come into the office regarding this pathway?
1: So, so nutrition is like one of those things that, you know, everybody kind of finds one of those fat diets and they just want to go on to that next fat diet. Right. And really uh, what matters is whether you're able to sustain that diet or not. Sometimes some diets will work better for some people. They may be able to do, maintain that diet better. And that's really what's important. As long as you're eating healthy and you're on a diet that you're able to maintain is what you need to do. You can start with the VLCD, and that's always done. A VLCD is a very low-calorie diet, and that's always done under physician supervision. Uh, Nobody should try it at home um, because it does have some risks to it. People a lot of times go on a ketogenic diet. That's very helpful, too. Um, That does work. People sometimes go on on intermittent fasting. That works. Uh, Sometimes people lose weight with whole food plant based diet. That works. So there are a lot of other there are a lot of types of diets that you can do, and really have to find what works for you in terms of not just weight loss, but in terms of something that you will be able to sustain. Now, even if somebody say goes on a ketogenic diet, but they're not able to sustain it, even though they've had the weight loss, if they're not going to be able to sustain it, there's really no point in putting somebody through that because you have to be able to sustain that diet.
0: Can you explain actually what a ketogenic diet is? Because did some research on it and initially it was a diet that was started in patients with epilepsy. So can you explain that? Because that's one of the fad diets that's in existence right now that everybody's on a ketogenic diet.
1: <laughs> so, you know, interestingly, ketogenic diet has been around for a very long time. I think from somewhere somewhere around 1800s, it's been there. Well, not exactly ketogenic, but a low carb diet. So uh, William Banting was a gentleman uh, in, uh, he was an undertaker, I believe, and it was in 1865. And he was suffering from obesity. And what he did was pretty much remove a lot of those uh, processed carbs from his diet. And it, he went into a sort of low carb diet and and really helped him so it's been around for a long time low carb diet now when we talk about ketogenic and we talk about low carbohydrate diet there are two separate things ketogenic is a very specific diet when you are your carbohydrate load to the body is so low that you start producing ketones which are produced by fat metabolism and so usually it's going to be less than 50 grams of carbohydrates a day or sometimes even less than 20 grams of carbohydrates a day so that's really your uh, that's your ketogenic diet when you start producing ketones from the fat so it is helpful because when you're eating low carbohydrate load, it does decrease the insulin levels. So it helps with that. And that we know does drive um, the obesity. It starts producing ketones. It starts using ketones as a fuel that is from the fat metabolism. So we do see some fat metabolism occurring because of the ketogenic diet. And so, yeah, it does help. But having said that, it doesn't mean that the other diets don't work. Mm-hmm. So, so again, like I said, it's, it's really about what works for you and what you can do. Now, even if you're not able to do a ketogenic diet, if you're able to do a low carb diet, that also works. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and that's essentially what ketogenic is,
0: okay. I understand too that you said it produces ketones. so this wouldn't be an ideal diet for like a diabetic, correct?
1: Well, interestingly, it sometimes does work because what ends up happening is that it does decrease the insulin levels in your uh, in your body as well. Now we we when we're talking about the ketones, ketoacidosis is a different state that occurs when you don't have enough insulin in the body causing you to go into that state but because you're on a you're having a low carbohydrate load per se so your blood sugar levels are not going to be as high anyway so it does not lead mean, mean usually does not lead to ketoacidosis now if you're on some medications you have to be very careful because uh, certain medications uh, like your uh, canagliflozin and, and you know all of the others SGLT2 inhibitors they can cause non non-euglycemic ketoacidosis as well which we know about but you have to be a little careful of course with diabetics you have to monitor because when they go on this diet sometimes you have to actually reduce their uh, insulin you have to reduce their if they have hypertension, you have to reduce their antihypertensis because carbohydrates also tend to store a lot of water with them. And once people go on a low carbohydrate diet or a ketogenic diet, they start. for the first thing that comes off is the water weight. And once you start losing that water, of course, you're going to start having some amount of dehydration. So you need, you need to keep yourself hydrated and you're going to have some drop in your blood pressure as well. So that those are things that need to be monitored. And that's why when you're treating somebody with uh, obesity, it should always be done under supervision. Uh, of somebody who can monitor especially if you're on medications
0: okay and the last question i had about the ketogenic diet it does that put you in a state of ketosis and is that a good thing in the long term
1: so ketogenic by itself yes it does put you in ketosis if you're not in ketosis then you're not on a ketogenic diet Mm -hmm. so at the end of the day you have to be in ketosis on a ketogenic diet and yeah people who can tolerate a ketogenic diet yes it, it works in the long run Uh, As far as its effect on the overall health, I'm not sure there's uh, a lot of data on the overall health in the long run. Now, by long run, I mean five years, 10 years. I'm not sure if there's data to that. I don't know. But as far as like the one year, two year data, safety, it's, it's used and it's safe. Um, we do find improvement in uh, the lipid profile with people who are on a low-carbohydrate diet. Now, people sometimes may start with a ketogenic diet and then may transition to a low-carbohydrate diet for their maintenance phase. So they may start losing the weight on a ketogenic diet and then they eventually may go to a low-carbohydrate diet, which is not in the ketogenic range, so you increase the amount of carbohydrates that you're eating, and but you're maintaining your weight. So that's also important to understand. The strategies can change over time.
0: Okay. And another popular dietary plan is the intermittent fasting. What are the type plans that exist for that? And has that been shown to be beneficial in the long run as far as combating obesity or being overweight? So,
1: you know, fasting has been around for ages. Mm-hmm. It's been around forever. We never had this opulence of food when we were hunter-gatherers. And obviously, there would be times when you would basically not be eating something and then there would be times when you would be eating something so a lot of these religions any religion you take they have some form of fasting or the other which is for quote you know they say you get brings you closer to god and so it's been around for a while so we know that it works i mean sorry we know that it's safe whether it works for obesity or not what i think intermittent fasting does is it just puts you into a state of ketosis Because it's essentially you're not eating carbohydrates. When you're not eating carbohydrates, what ends up happening is your glycogen is metabolized. And what ends up happening after that is you start metabolizing your fats. And it's going to put you in a state of ketosis. Now, the the thing about intermittent fasting is that what kind of intermittent fasting are you doing? The most widely studied is the alternate day fasting which is you eat very limited number of calories, like 500 calories or something on one day, and the next day you're eating your normal diet. And that's the most commonly researched diet. But it's very, very difficult to comply with. It's very tedious to understand which day you're supposed to eat, which day you're not supposed to eat. Okay. But it is effective. It does work. There is some data to suggest that it's better than other diets that are than just calorie restriction. So there is data to suggest that it's slightly better than that but it's also about compliance now there are other forms of time-restricted eating like the 16-8 diet where you are fasting for 16 hours and you eat within an eight-hour window then there is a 20 and 424 diet where you're fasting for 20 hours and eating in a four-hour window and really have to find what works for you the other thing also comes that comes into play over here is the uh, what we call uh, chrononutrition is what time of the day are you fasting are you fasting during the morning or are you fasting at night so that also comes into play over here, which is better for you. And so it's it's uh, it's interesting you can do that. The problem with fa- intermittent fasting is when you fasted for this long, you want to give yourself a pat on the back and you just want to kind of gorge on your best foods. But that really should not be the, the way you do it. That's I don't think that's the way to, to look at it. I think you should still concentrate on eating healthy foods when you're about to break your fast. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's the way to go about it. Really make sure that you have foods available which are going to be nutrient-dense when you're about to break your fast. So you have to plan for it. Even the, the fast, when you break it, it should not be a random thing. You should have things ready because when you break your fast, you're going to be wanting to eat something, and you will really eat anything that's available at that point in time. And so you should make sure that you have the right foods, the nutrient-dense foods available to you to eat at that time. Okay.
0: And the last nutrition plan that I kind of heard about is the paleo that is kind of popular as well. So, can you explain what that is? And
1: so, yeah, the paleo diet actually comes from, um, you know, basically how humans used to live when they were cavemen. And uh, <laughs> so it talks about eating more vegetables, fruits, some grains. Mm-hmm. um and kind of avoiding some of the things like dairy uh avoiding actually sorry they avoid grains and legumes and they they basically talk about eating more of poultry fish eggs nuts and seeds some vegetables but really avoid cereals grains legumes starchy vegetables like potatoes dairy and processed foods now i have a problem with that per se it it may be good it's kind of like a low carbohydrate diet because you're avoiding uh, grains and legumes which are Essentially, sources of carbohydrate and pro- well, uh, legumes are also sources of protein. But the problem is, there is data to suggest that people who consume legumes have populations that consume legumes have uh, a longer lifespan. So, so legumes have an important role in our overall health. So, I have a problem with that. But having said that, it's okay. You can try that. But the other side of it is, there are a lot of foods that are available in the market that are paleo foods. Quote unquote, like you'll have these paleo pancake mixes and this and that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure our cavemen never used to eat pancakes, so I have a problem with that too. <laughs> I,
0: yeah, I, I, I agree.
1: <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, it's okay. You can try it. It does work. At the end of the day, it's kind of like a low carbohydrate diet. And like I said, it's whatever works for you. Whatever you're able to sustain, a healthy diet that you are able to sustain is the best diet for you and is the diet you should be on and try to see what are the modalities that you can use when you're on that diet.
0: Okay. And that's a great point that you make that you need to be able to stick to it. And a lot of the time when I have patients come into the office, it's difficult for them to maintain a ketogenic diet or paleo diet, you know, this intermittent fasting. So I usually just emphasize to them to make sure that they eat a well-balanced nutrition plan because depriving yourself for a long period of time of certain foods especially in you know certain types of foods it's hard to maintain for a lifetime so that's why i kind of emphasize it's better to eat healthy food choices over the different food groups
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, whatever works for patients. Are, some people are able to maintain themselves on a low carb diet, and some people are able to maintain some themselves on a ketogenic diet, and that's great if they are able to do it. That's great, but if they're not able to do it, they have to try and eat healthy, whatever type of diet they're following. Great. So th- that's that's the underlying, the, the, that's the bottom part of it. You know, that's the bottom line.
0: And so I want to mention also in regards to uh, nutrition. It's been reported by the CDC that fewer than one in ten children and adults eat the recommended daily amount of vegetables. So I know that there's recommendations as far as guidelines, according to I think the United States Department of Agriculture. So can you explain to my listeners what the USDA is, as well as the recommended daily consumption of certain types of food groups?
1: Sure, absolutely. So U- USDA started publishing its guidelines in 1970s. Actually, the first guidelines were published by a different committee and not by the USDA, which were taken over by the USDA in 1979 or 1980. And it's been publishing guidelines for health eating in uh, the American population since then. So the latest guidelines just came out in uh, 2020 December. And there was some controversy about the, di- about the guidelines because of the evidence so the way these guidelines are formulated is actually there's a scientific committee they look at the data that's available and they submit it to the usd and then finally the guidelines come out the controversy that really came out of it was that the scientific committee as far as obesity goes the scientific committees recommended that the added sugars should be limited to less than six percent of your um, daily intake but uh, daily calorie intake, but mm-hmm. the USDA kept it at its current uh, recommendation of less than ten percent of the daily calorie intake, which is uh, which is slightly higher than we would want. Uh, but there were other good things that the USDA guidelines mentioned. I think they can be a very good way to look at nutrition. I personally think it was it's a nice way of understanding how you can start with a healthy diet. So they mentioned something about the 85-15 rule. Okay. Which I think is a great way to start, honestly. Uh, It's basically you eat, 85% of the times you eat healthy. Okay. And 15% of the times it's like a free pass to eat whatever you want to eat. So, And I think that's a great way to start because, so you can start with whatever you want and you can even do 80, 80, 20, 80% of the times you're eating healthy and 20% of the times you eat whatever you want to eat, but try to aim for 80, 85, 15 and beyond that if you can. Mm Mm-hmm. So really, I think that's the way, that's the right way to start. As far as the the amount of vegetables that you should eat in a day, you should eat five servings of fruits or vegetables during the day, right. which is considered to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's very important. The other very important thing that they mentioned, and I, I found this very interesting, was that even though the American population is meeting its protein intake, I think we're all about protein these days, but they actually when you subclassify into the types of proteins, they found that 90% of the population is actually deficient in the different types of proteins. So most of the protein comes from meat, but other sources of protein like plant protein or uh, seafood is missing in the population so they talk about diversifying your source of protein as well beans other vegetables and uh, seafood diversifying your sources of protein is also very very important as far as your overall health goes
0: okay and do you suggest individuals keep a food diary and is that beneficial
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very great way to start. And uh, there is actually data to suggest that keeping a food log by itself helps with weight loss. So just by logging in your whatever you're putting into your mouth helps with weight loss because you make conscious decisions based on what you've put onto, your, onto paper. A lot of times we'll just grab a few things here, a few things there, and we'll just forget about it. Mm -hmm. and what ends up happening is when you put it on on paper and you look at it at the end of the day you're able to reflect and consciously make some decisions that okay i did this maybe i'll not do this next time and uh yeah i think it's a great way to start if you can do that it's a little tedious but it's it's it works
0: okay so it's better probably because i I could see it being tedious in a sense that you need to actually put what you're eating down when you're about to eat it or right after because if
1: you wait long enough i think you'll forget about it
0: (laughs) i can't remember what i ate for breakfast
1: so like right right and it's not it's not even about the big meals i think what ends up happening is when you're eating the smaller meals like your snacks and you're just snacking on say a few chips here um, a few nuts there and a granola bar here and then you just forget about that or a pack of uh, you know a small glass of juice you just forget about that and that's what kind of adds up so you'll probably remember the big meals but not whatever you ate in the interim and uh, i think you can probably start by just noting down what foods you're eating. You don't necessarily need to weigh them and figure out what calories they have and this and that. If you can do that, great, really. That would be the ideal way to do it but that's very very tedious to actually weigh your food how much you're eating and how many calories they would have and this and that that's very tedious just writing them down you'll kind of know because all of us kind of know what are the good foods what are the healthy foods and what are not the, the unhealthy foods to eat and even just writing them down does help you make a conscious decision on what you put into your mouth next time
0: And I think also it's beneficial if you're not able to keep it up for a long period of time is that we just mentioned about, you know, having certain servings of different types of food groups is that when you start documenting it, you see that, oh, maybe I'm not eating as healthy as I think I am as far as making sure I get in those variety of fruits and vegetables, making sure I'm getting that protein in and things of that nature. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And- you mentioned the as far as how obesity is managed you said the four pillars I think we've kind of talked about the nutrition plan as well as the exercise I think that that played a, pl- a role you also mentioned I think one was the the mind how that the mental aspect how does that play a role and how can we manage it through that component
1: So yeah so there are certain things uh, that we can do of course one of the big things is accountability we talk about a lot of social support, accountability. So that's really important. I, in fact, have started um, something what I call the Decoding Obesity Hangout. It's basically a monthly meetup that I'm starting, uh, where people can just meet new people who are in the same boat and who can keep each other accountable. And it's free, so uh, so you know people can find accountability partners. A lot of times, it may be difficult to find a partner. Uh, within your close family group or your or your friends and you may need actually some stranger but if you're able to find somebody in your family that's great a great way to start now the other thing is also there are certain disorders psychiatric disorders like binge eating disorder bulimia that really require treatment so nighttime eating syndrome these require treatment now these are causes of obesity Somebody suffering from binge eating disorder, you tell them to restrict their food and you tell them to go for, for example, surgery, they're going to have worse outcomes with surgery because they're suffering from a psychiatric illness which requires treatment. Recognizing these diseases is also important um, as far as the management of obesity goes because really the underlying cause of uh, obesity in that person is the binge eating disorder, for example. And if that's not treated, then you can try and treat obesity with whatever medications you have available, but the underlying cause is not gone. And that becomes an issue. Sometimes people with, with binge eating disorder, for example, if they go for surgery, they'll have worse outcomes because the underlying binge eating disorder is not gone. The other other part is, of course, people who have underlying depression need to treat that. If people have had some traumatic events in the past, you need to address that. So there's a lot of mental health aspect also that goes into management of obesity and it becomes difficult to do all of this in a single visit or in an outpatient setting and that's why really you know people who are suffering from obesity should see an obesity specialist because there are a lot of other tools and resources that obesity specialists can use not to say that primary care physicians cannot mention and manage it I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of great including yourself a lot of great primary care physicians who can manage obesity but sometimes people require a more comprehensive program to help them, you know, get the help they need.
0: Okay. And does meditation play a role as well? And you mentioned that mindfulness in regards to having that be a treatment component.
1: So yeah, meditation certainly can help. It can help in overall health and in obesity, of course. There is some data for meditation, but there are, like I said, the psychiatric illnesses that need to be treated. We need stronger things. For example, for binge eating disorder, we actually require cognitive behavioral therapy or medications to treat that. For nighttime nighttime eating syndrome will require cognitive behavioral therapy. So things like these will require a lot more than just meditation because these are diseases in the DSM five that need to be treated. So so there's a lot more than the yes. But overall, yes, meditation can help. Absolutely. Uh, I'm a big proponent of meditation, mindful eating and all of that. So
0: I guess to kind of wrap up and one of my last questions is that I have patients that will come into the office, you have this diagnosis of being overweight or obese, and they may want a medication or they just want to be referred to surgery to get a procedure for weight loss. When are those particular avenues best to be used in managing those types of individuals?
1: So as far as medications go, if a person has a BMI of greater than 30 or a BMI greater than 27 with some of the comorbidities like high blood pressure, diabetes, they can be started on medications. If a person has a BMI of more than 40 or more than 35 with comorbidities, they are candidates for surgery. So really, we have these definitions for uh, people who can qualify for these things. But I think if the patient Requires medications, it has to be clinical judgment. And if they do require it, there is no reason for us to not give them those medications because we know that those medications work. So yeah, I I think if if a patient requires medications, they should be on medications because it's a chronic disease. Mm-hmm. I think recognizing it as a chronic disease is very important. It's it's not a willpower issue. And it's not somebody else, somebody, some person's fault who's suffering from obesity. It may be partly if their overall their diet is not healthy, but a lot of it also has a lot more things going on. And yeah, if they require medications, they should be on medications. Now, having said that, of course... You're if you're on a bad diet, you should not be on medications. You really need to rectify your diet, your lifestyle first. So that needs to be done. That I'm when I'm talking about medications, I'm, I'm I'm assuming that the patients have already switched over to a lifestyle that is sustainable and healthy but they're still not getting the results that they need or um, I'm not going to say that they want because what they want may be very different from what they actually need. And that's the other, that's a whole different conversation. But yeah, so once they've switched over to a healthier lifestyle, that includes a healthier diet, exercise, then yes, if they're still not getting the results, absolutely, they should be on medications if they qualify.
0: Okay. Any additional thoughts that you would like to share with any of my listeners before we uh, get out of here today?
1: <laughs> well, I think it's uh, what I want people to understand is it's a very complex disease. When I was in India and when I was here studying, really, I didn't study a whole lot about obesity till I actually studied about obesity medicine and got board certified in it. And before that, my thought process was that it's the person who's suffering from obesity, it's his or her fault. And now I know it's much more complex than that. It's not as simple as people make it to be. The front end looks very easy and very simple to understand that it's just calories in calories out you can just control what you put into your mouth but there is a lot more that it is as uh, that is at play over here so what i want people to take home is if you are suffering from obesity or if you have a loved one suffering from obesity make sure you seek the right help for it because there is excellent um, there are excellent therapeutics available for it which may be able to help you and once you get treated for obesity uh, it may help with other comorbidities like hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, etc. Correct. So, yeah.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. You've provided us with a wealth of knowledge. And I just want to make sure that my listeners are aware, just like Dr. Shabrawa mentioned, that you should consult a physician regarding any of the information that you found to be helpful during this episode, and especially before embarking on any new exercise program as well as nutrition program. So I hope this has been helpful. Definitely leave a five-star review on your streaming platform of choice and feel free to share with your friends and family. And this is your host, Dr. Dion. Take care. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please subscribe and feel free to tell your family and friends to check out the podcast. And remember, this podcast is for educational purposes only, and the thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice.